We're going to go ahead and get started today with the fourth psalm. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But I know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Heavenly Father, here we are in your glorious presence. And the radiance of your glory just shines all around us from the open hand of your creation, the trees and the birds and the waves that are lapping the shore. We thank you for these things and for all the joy that you give us in our hearts each day with the rise of a new sun and with the prospect of a day ahead of us. And I thank you for each person that's here and I ask that you would bless them in their hearts and in their souls and that maybe they'd hear something today that would bless them and that uh, would honor you. And uh, may the meditation of our heart be proper and right in your sight. Lord, uh, for those that are afflicted or that are facing unhappiness right now, I would ask that you would search them out and uh, give them relief from that and uh, just take care of the needs of your people. You're a great God, and I uh, want to ask that you would uh, allow me to preach a, a sermon that would uh, be edifying to these people and properly handling your word according to what you would intend for us. Lord, you're, you're just wonderful. We do thank you for all you've done for us, and uh, may this service be an offering to you. And we pray this in the name of our exalted Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, I got a, a few announcements today. Uh, the first thing I'll say is it's hot out here, and uh, we got a lot of water over here. Anybody that wants some, just go grab it. And uh, my brother bought, brought that and the donuts, and uh, we don't like to leave here with donuts, so please eat them up. Don't be shy. When they're gone, they're gone, but just get in there and knock yourself out. And um, uh, we uh, have a couple of sad things to talk about today. One of them is that uh, for people that are local, we have a couple of... Uh, Chinese buffet restaurants right down on 41 and um, uh, they're right next door to each other and there's kind of this little competition between them but uh, there is the one that's closest to us uh, which in other words south uh, even though they're right next door uh, a couple of people went into there this uh, week and I think they were Hispanic uh, and uh, one of them has a uh, tattoo of a rosary on his hand and I bring that up so that if you see him you identify him to the police because uh, you never know if you're going to run across somebody. But they just ate, and they refused to pay, and they walked out. And uh, the manager went out after him, and uh, they beat him to death. He died uh, Friday night. And uh, some of the people here are very good friends of him. And I will say this, that um, one of the Bible classes that I used to conduct out at Grace Baptist Church, uh, one of the uh, uh, groups that attended there had their own Bible study, and every week they would go after that, and they would uh, go to this particular restaurant. And um, they would just simply sit and pray and before they ate their meal, and they were just a good testimony to the Lord. And one day the, the family asked, what are you doing every week? Why is it that you're quiet and you, you know, and they explained, this is our hope, this is what we believe. And uh, they brought Bibles to this family, 
And uh, I, I don't want to say this with certainty because I don't know the individuals personally, but uh, uh, they did uh, acknowledge the Bibles. They said that they'd been reading it as a family. And uh, we have every confidence that uh, the people that attended uh, this you know, fellowship gathering at this place talked to them about the Lord and at least gave him the message. And so I would hope that uh, you know, we'll walk with him on streets of glory someday. But that's a testament to the faithfulness of people that are willing to, uh, to live properly in the presence of the Lord and to uh, uh, show why they have the hope they have in them. But please keep the family of Andrew in prayer. It's a, it's a sad thing that's happened. And uh, somebody else here uh, came up to me earlier and talked to me about her son who is in the hospital. He's got liver problems and he's uh, jaundiced, he's yellow. And uh, we would ask that uh, you'd remember him in prayer as well. And uh, we've got people with uh, continuing physical problems that attend here regularly. And uh, I don't want to single them out, but uh, those that know them, uh, uh, we would ask that you would uh, just continue to pray for them. Keep them in prayer because uh, physical problems take our eyes off of the Lord, whether we want it or not. I mean, it's hard to praise the Lord when you're in agony. And we can do it, but it's a difficult thing and it's a distraction. So obviously you want to be in good health to uh, be able to praise the Lord. But uh, those and other things, please keep in prayer. And... um, uh, I uh, want to thank, we got some people that came here from Ohio and some from Pennsylvania, and that always touches me when I see people going on vacation and actually going to church, because it's a rare thing. Usually you just do it with the people you fellowship with, and that's about it. And uh, when they bring along a Bible as well, that really touches me, because you know me, I'm a big Bible guy. But uh, uh, I get a little long. I, I, I say that uh, just depending on what church you attend. Uh, we're usually here for about an hour and a half, and I speak through the whole thing. Um, we used to have musicians when we met in the afternoon. We don't anymore, uh, simply because I told the people that had their own church, I do not want them attending church on the beach and stealing somebody from another church. So it's just been me reading psalms and talking and then giving the sermon. And uh, that will change very soon for you, those of you that don't know this. We bought a building. It's over in the Gulf Gate area, and we're going to hopefully move in soon. It took 14 weeks to get the required permits and uh, then the beginning of the work was very slow because of the rains interfered with the concrete work. And um, uh, then every single time we have something done, an inspector has to inspect it. And we have 20 inspections for a building about the size of where we're meeting. It's teeny. Uh, but anyway, hopefully we'll be moving into there shortly. And uh, at that time, maybe we'll have some music or whatever. If people play an instrument, that would be great. If not, maybe we can have... Uh, Uh, you know, something other than me just doing this. And I have people that already are participating in some ways getting us ready for this. So it's kind of exciting. But um, just so you know, uh, the point I was trying to make about that is that if I get a little long, don't feel bad about getting up and leaving. I I, I understand it's hot. I understand there's mosquitoes. And uh, I I don't ever want anybody to feel like I got to sit and listen to another half hour of this guy. So um, if you if you like the Bible and you like the details, then you'll enjoy the sermon. If you like life application, then I'm probably not your bag, and that's just the way it is. And uh, every, churches are designed for people to feel comfortable and to, uh, uh, you know, worship God in the way that they feel comfortable. And I don't think anybody should be uh, oppressed by, you know, something they don't like. And so don't feel bad if you do uh, say, I just got to go. But we should be done in about an hour and 20 minutes is my guess. Um, This is today our 82nd Genesis sermon. We're all the way up to Genesis 33, and uh, it's uh, something that we should have done last week, but because of the rains, it was moved to this week. Uh, Then next week, we have 
one more sermon, and then I'm going away the week after that. I'll be in Massachusetts for one Sunday. So we won't have church uh, two weeks from now. This week, yes. Next week, yes. And then two weeks from now, I'll be gone for one Sunday. And um, uh, hopefully, shortly after I get back, things will start progressing where we can actually plan on a date to move into the building. But we'll see about that. And uh, I think that's, oh, no, I have one more uh, announcement. I say this every week is that uh, if you look over the little hill right here, there's a, a little bit of water. And if anybody here has never been scripturally baptized, that's something I'll do any day of the week, and I'll do it right after the service if you wish. Uh, baptism in the Bible is always somebody that has accepted the Lord Jesus. It's not something you do when you're, you're uh, you know, born in infant baptism. Uh, that's not the biblical model. Um, it's a picture of what you have just gone through. I've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I am buried with him in his death and I'm raised to newness of life through the power of the resurrection. And it's one of only two ordinances that the Lord commanded for us. The first is baptism, the second is the Lord's Supper. So if you've never done that and you think today is the day, let me know and we'll go out there and we'll dunk you and I'll try to remember to bring you back up out of the water. But uh, that's, uh, that's all of the uh, announcements I have. And um, I see what I did. I read the fourth Psalm, I think, just a moment ago. And I should have read the third Psalm. So I'm going to read Psalm 3 now, and then uh, we'll get into uh, our regular service. Psalm number 3, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your people, your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Now, uh, for the people that attend regularly, I usually do a New Testament reading. We'll actually uh, study a little bit, nothing in depth, but just read and then uh, some comments on it. I'm not going to do that because it's hot, and uh, the longer we wait here, the sun will be up, and eventually it gets real hot. So uh, for the people that are here, I think they're used to that now, me not doing a New Testament reading. But it's something we'll be doing once we move into the building, having Bible studies a couple days a week, and I'll try to make it user-friendly uh, for times that people can show up. But uh, today is going to be Genesis 33, verses 1 through 17. It's a lot of verses. Normally, uh, our sermons are uh, less than that. But uh, it's one complete story, and so I want to keep it uh, contained as a whole. And it's entitled, Jacob Meets Esau. And we've been waiting for this for a long time. It's, it's a wonderful meeting that's uh, coming place. Now, before I give the, uh, do the reading and uh, give the actual sermon, every week I do something uh, which I enjoy a lot, and it helps us tie in history with the Bible sometimes, is uh, this day in history. And today is the 14th of July, and on this day in 1733, a guy named John Winthrop was granted the first honorary Doctor of Law degree given by Harvard College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, this guy, John Winthrop, was the descendant. Uh, he was the grandson of another John Winthrop, who was actually a, a founder of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And... Uh, he became a professor of mathematics and physics, I think, at uh, Harvard College, and uh, they gave him an honorary doctorate degree. Uh, he eventually filled in as the acting president of Harvard, and uh, at this time in Harvard's history, it was a theological seminary. It wasn't the secular school that we have nowadays, 
and you were required to know Hebrew and Greek. And uh, uh, the purpose was to train people to go out into this new nation and be pastors and preachers and professors. And uh, this was what he did. I'm not a big fan of honorary degrees. Nowadays they give them because you belong to a political party or something and uh, not because you've earned it in any way. But this guy was very intelligent and uh, uh, maybe it was the right thing to do to give him that. Uh, in 1861, the first major battle of the Civil War began. Does anybody know what battle was the first major engagement of the Civil War? The battle, it was the first battle of Bull Run at Manassas. There were actually two uh, Bull Run battles, but uh, uh, this was the beginning of the death of over 600,000 Americans. And uh, on this day, people went into battle and uh, they thought, I'm going to uh, be a hero and I'm going to go back and see mom. And uh, they may have died that day. And uh, the point is, and I love to bring up battles simply for the fact that uh, it's a life ending thing normally. And uh, uh, you don't know the end of your life. You don't know if you're going to get into a, a car today and drive up to get a sandwich at Anna's and uh, get hit by somebody that's a tourist from Ohio. So uh, you just don't know. And so I want you all to be uh, aware that you do have an end. Uh, the Bible says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Because when you're in the house of feasting, all you're doing is thinking about the good times. But when you go to a funeral, you realize that there is an end and maybe I ought to be thinking about it. And uh, these people hopefully had their uh, ducks in a row as far as their eternal salvation, because if not, then they went off to a different place. But uh, that's the way of the world. Uh, the same day, uh, July 14th in 1925, the monkey trial ended in Dayton, Tennessee. John T. Scopes was convicted of violating state law for teaching Darwin's theory of evolution. The conviction was later overturned. Um, the fact is he was told not to do something and he did it anyway, so he was guilty. Um, uh, whether the law was a good law or not is, to me, it's irrelevant. Uh, what he should have done is gone and had the law changed and then taught his theory rather than being belligerent to the state who has passed the law and then trying to get around it. And that's the way we work our system in America quite often. But uh, uh, it was a victory for the Christians at the time. It was a loss overall. And uh, since then, exactly the opposite has happened. And now think of the, the hypocrisy of this. We pass a law that says you can't teach evolution because at the time we were really firmly entrenched in the Christian message and we believed that God is the creator and that we did not evolve from slime. And uh, they said, well, that's not fair. We ought to be able to give our opinion in the uh, classroom. And now exactly the opposite has happened where we cannot say the name of Jesus Christ in a classroom without being thrown into jail. And the hypocrisy of saying that we have to teach evolution, which still has the word theory at the end of it, because it's not a fact. There's not one bone of evidence anywhere to support evolution. And so it's a theory and it ought to be taught, you know, at the same time as other theories maybe, but it certainly is not something that we should be teaching exclusively. So anyway, 1940 on this day, uh, three countries, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia were annexed by the Soviet Union. And uh, here we have uh, uh, the communists taking over that part of the world. And of course, that didn't work out very well. Those countries are now free, but it was after many people were removed to other areas. They died in concentration camps. There was uh, a lot of problems with that type of thing. And uh, our nation right now is trying to adopt the very things that it didn't work over in Europe as if it's going to work this time. Communism isn't going to work. Socialism isn't going to work. And, you know, until the Lord comes, the very best model that we have is the Constitution of the United States. And people are trying to tear that down. But that's where we're at right now. 
1944, on this day, uh, American forces landed on Guam. Beautiful island. If you've never been there, I really love Guam. Uh, this was uh, uh, towards the end of World War II. It was our island. They were a, a protectorate of America. Japan went in and forced us out at the beginning of the war, and uh, we went back victorious and uh, kicked them back out. And uh, Guam uses U.S. dollars. They're a lot like Puerto Rico. They drive on the right side of the road. They speak English. It's a, a very Catholic-dominated uh, area, but it's a nice place and good people, and I'm glad that we got that back. Uh, uh, they're happy in the state they're in, too. They actually have a representative in the uh, House of Representatives, a non-voting member, and so they are represented. And I think they like the status that they have, not being a state, but being protected and uh, you know, being a, a part of America. And then uh, 1954 on this day, the Geneva Conference partitioned Vietnam in the North and South. And what a disaster. You know, they were run over by the uh, French forever. Uh, French Indochina it was called for eons. And uh, eventually they left and uh, Americans moved in. And uh, it's North and South Vietnam. It's called the 10,000-day war because it went on for over 10,000 days. And how many people from all kinds of countries, not just Vietnam, but all over the world, people went in there and just died for for insanity almost. Um, and uh, eventually the communists did take over. Uh, they uh, We pulled out. Communists took over the nation. It did become unified finally. But, um, you know, they've been oppressive to their people. I had a friend uh, that's in Malaysia, which I lived in Malaysia for three years, and it's behind us. But they just went over to visit Vietnam, and they said, this is 30 years behind Malaysia. So you can see that communism does not achieve the goals that people, these lofty ideals that these people seem to think it will. And, you know, had they uh, come under uh, us instead of the communists, I think they probably would have been almost first world like Malaysia is. But that's where we're at with them. Um, then we have in very sad uh, thing, actually this isn't sad, but what happens later is 1961 on this day, Captain Virgil Gus Grissom became the second American to rocket into suborbital pattern around the Earth flying on the Liberty Bell 7. And uh, unfortunately, not long after that, he uh, was in a uh, space capsule with two other astronauts and he was incinerated over at Cape Canaveral. So uh, he, uh, he died in the, I would call it the service of his nation, but he actually did get into space before that happened. Um, 1968, uh, this, I'm not sports, everybody that knows me knows I don't like sports, but it's kind of a fun thing. Arnold Palmer became the first golfer to make a million dollars in career earnings after he tied for second place at the PGA Championship. And now, I mean, they make that in, in five minutes. They get endorsements that are worth, I think Tiger Woods is worth 200 some million dollars or something. So, but anyway, that, you see how the, the value of money has changed and how our priorities have changed as well, because we just throw ourselves behind sports in this nation. But, uh, uh, and we make idols out of people that shouldn't be idols, and then we have what happened this couple weeks ago where that guy killed a couple people, and now he's in jail and threw away a, a career and promise of, you know, just a, a good life. But that's what happens. Um, 1997, uh, this is our final point for today from July 14th. The USS Constitution, it's a naval ship. Does anybody know its uh, uh, nickname? Old Ironsides. Got a couple people that know their history. Uh, it uh, defended the United States during the War of 1812, believe it or not. It actually set sail under its own power for the first time in 116 years. 
and now they do take it out for celebrations and memorials and they put up the it's one of these uh, great ships of the past and uh, it's beautiful to see but uh, to think that that thing sat there for 116 years as a floating museum and they said we're going to recommission it and it's uh, actually a part of our commissioned uh, uh, fleet now um, anyway so that's this day in history and now we'll go ahead and get into our uh, Genesis reading I'll read you the uh, 17 verses for uh, the sermon and uh, then we'll have a sermon Genesis 33 verses 1 through 17. As I'm reading, try to think about what God is telling us. If you've been here for the previous sermons, you know who these people picture and try to think why is God including these details? And uh, hopefully you'll come to some conclusions. If not, we'll explain it in the next 45 minutes or so. It says uh, verse 30, chapter 33 verse 1, now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and there Esau was coming and with him were 400 men so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom you're whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me, please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard, one day all the flock would lie. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, Now, let me leave some with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. I'll tell you that there is a war which is raging in the world today between the people of the world. And it's against the message of God in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. Christians are martyred for their faith by the hundreds of thousands and sometimes even millions in a single year. And the world turns a blind eye to it. We have one murderer in America and the, the uh, press grabs a hold of it and they make it into a national scene. And yet we have millions of people that are being martyred for the name of Jesus and nobody says anything about it. If you have the stomach to read accounts about this type of persecution, there's a website and there's a magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs. And if you're on Facebook, you can like their page as well. And in those uh, articles that they publish, they give many instances that continue on unabated in the world today of this type of persecution. But if you need a boost in your faith, it's a great place to go to see what others are willing to face for the honor, and I mean that sincerely, the honor of bearing the title of Christian. 
We treat it kind of sloppily in America. I'm a Christian, but over there, it's a real honor. And to die for your faith, even to this day, is an honor for these people. The reason for the enmity between the Christians of the world and the rest of the world is as old as the span of as man on earth. Man rebelled against God and he was separated from him. And now there are two paths for Adam's fallen seed to take. One is, as Jesus said, a broad path. It leads off to destruction. This path rejects God's provision and it attempts to reconcile with God by man's efforts. In other words, I'm going to do something to make God happy. I'm gonna to climb to the top of a mountain and I'm gonna praise him or I'm going to uh, join a monastery and I'm going to devote my life to uh, being a humble person before God or maybe I'm gonna give billions of dollars to AIDS research. It's about me, it's self-idolatry. The second is the narrow path, it leads to life. It acknowledges that there is no thing, nothing, there is no thing that we can do to be restored to God. Instead, what it does is it accepts that what God has done is all sufficient for our healing and for our reconciliation. He has provided the path. It is Jesus. It is his life, it is his death, and it is his resurrection. God says in his word that it is the only way to be saved. Every human must come to Christ individually. We can remain defiant and we can continue to be at war with God or trying to please him on our own merits, or we can accept his provision and we can receive his offering where peace between God and man is restored. Today's passage will show us pictures of this restoration between God and man in the reconciliation between two brothers who had been separated and at enmity with each other for so long. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Titus. It's chapter two. It says, for the grace of God, grace is unmerited favor. It's something you cannot earn. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. In other words, the good works come from the salvation, not for the salvation. Huge, huge theological difference there. Jacob finally appeared to Esau after sending five droves of gifts before their encounter. In the same way, Christ finally appeared to Adam's race after providing five dispensations, which each worked to prepare us for that meeting. The Genesis stories show us time and time again that God has a plan and how that plan will come about. Each story gives us particular insights into this overall plan, and today is no different. And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first uh, thought today is a joyous reunion. Verse one of chapter 33. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. We begin chapter 23 with the anticipated meeting between Jacob and Esau finally coming about. After 20 years of separation, the meeting is now just moments away. Jacob had deceived his father Isaac and stolen the blessing from Esau, and Esau had threatened to kill him at the death of their father, and so Jacob fled. Now these many years later, still before the death of Isaac, Jacob is returning as he was directed by God. This is an important encounter, especially considering that Jacob is never mentioned as a meeting with his father Isaac. 
if you understand my logic there. And he is very close to his father Isaac when he returns to the land of Canaan, and he lives within a couple miles of him for many, many years, but the Bible doesn't record it. Therefore, there is a reason why God included these details while not mentioning any reunion with Isaac. Once again, the specific number of Esau's men is given. It's 400. This detail is included because God wants us to search out why. Why is this number used? Otherwise, it would have done as it does elsewhere in the Bible. He came with a large group of people, or he came with a large band of men, or whatever. But it doesn't do that. It gives a specific number. As noted a few weeks ago, the number 400 is the product of two other numbers, the number 8 and the number 50. 8 is the Hebrew word shmone. It comes from the Greek word or the root word shamein, which means to make fat or to be covered in fat, which to the Hebrew mind gives the idea of superabundance. Now, when this word shamein is used as a participle, it means one who abounds in strength. And as a noun, it means superabundant fertility or oil. In other words, it's this abundance, all right? So as a numeral, the numeral eight is the superabundant number. The other number is the number 50, which is the number of jubilee or of deliverance. If you know the Bible, there's the year of jubilee, which happens every 50th year. It points to deliverance and rest following on as a result of a perfect consummation of time. Therefore, 400 is the product of eight and 50, and it means a divinely perfect period resulting in rest. The number 400 right here is pointing to the entire time of man's history, from their time in the Garden of Eden all the way through until the Kingdom Age, the millennial reign, which is future to us now. As noted, it is a divinely perfect period resulting in rest. Okay, now I want to say this in case somebody, uh, I have people that watch this on YouTube and they make notes from it. And when I gave that analysis the last time, I was thinking of Israel because that particular sermon dealt with the people of Israel. And I said that it was 400 was representing the time from the exodus in Egypt to the time of the kingdom age. And that's not correct. It is the time of man's history on earth from the time in the garden all the way through to the millennial kingdom. Just in case you made a note on that, I want you to have that correct. Verse one continues. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants in an attempt to break up the family in case things don't go too well. Jacob makes a division of his mothers and children into three different groups. Now, it's good to remember who these people picture, or we can miss why God is including these details at all. Jacob pictures Christ Jesus. Leah pictures the law. Rachel pictures the grace of the New Testament. And the two maidservants picture the two exiles of Israel. And the children picture the people of Israel. All right? Verse 2. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Now, Adam Clark, if you know who he is, he's the great Methodist theologian and commentator from years past. He says this about verse 2. There is something so artificial in this arrangement of Jacob's family that it must have some peculiar design. The answer is obvious when you know who the people picture. The least favored go first, followed by the most favored. Obviously, captivity or exile, which is pictured by the maidservants, is least favored, and so they go first. Then you have the law, which is pictured by Leah. She goes next. And finally, an encounter with God's beautiful grace, Rachel comes last. Verse three, then he, meaning Jacob, then he crossed over before them. Jacob, who is picturing the Lord, went before them. 
This is beautifully, and I mean it is just beautifully reflected in Micah's words concerning the restoration of Israel. It says there in Micah chapter 2, the one who breaks open will come before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. The king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Verse 3 continues, and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This type of bowing, we've seen in the past, there's a bowing which is complete prostration. You actually put your face right down in the dust. That's not this type of bowing here. This would be a deep oriental bow as he's walking towards his brother. It would be like the Japanese do, if you've ever seen these Japanese, how they bow. It was a sign of respect to his older brother Esau as he's approaching him, but it also may have had the purpose of stopping to petition God for his favor on the way. In other words, I'm bowing as a sign of respect to my brother, but I'm also stopping saying, Lord, you know, please let this go favorably. And so there's probably two things going on with each of these seven bows. I would suggest to you, and this is just me speculating, that these seven bows, which are recorded here for a reason, are the same symbolism as the five gifts that he had given earlier. The five gifts pictured the five dispensations prior to Christ's coming, all right? These seven bows then would picture all of the dispensations of history, including the two after Christ's coming. This story, as you're gonna see in a minute, is showing us man's reconciliation to Christ at any point in human history. It is when we see him as individuals that we run to him. Therefore, it is a picture of us at any point throughout the span of history. Verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. In an act which is reminiscent of the prodigal son that Jesus spoke about, Esau ran to meet Jacob. Esau represents, as we have seen continuously through all of these sermons with Jacob and Esau, Adam. He represents you and me, fallen man. This meeting is picturing man's meeting with the Lord and the peace and restoration which is found between the two. In this verse right here is something that is very, very, very unusual in the Hebrew, all right? It is a writing tool called a puncta extraordinaria. We translate that into English as the extraordinary punctuation. Above the words, and kissed him, which in Hebrew is vayishehehu, there are a series of dots or points which provide emphasis. Now I printed it off for you. I'm gonna bring it around and show you. You can pass it around to each of these people so you can see this is a very rare occurrence in the Hebrew text, all right? It is said that these dots are placed there to draw attention of the person who is reading the account to the change that had taken place in Esau. Let me read it to you again. It says, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. All of that is where these dots are, and kissed him. And then it says after that, and they wept, all right? The change is in Esau. It's not in Jacob. It is Esau who receives his brother. So it's obvious, it is painfully obvious that this is picturing the change in us when we meet and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is our moment of salvation. Now having seen this, it says that they both wept. Both Esau and Jacob wept. This right here is the heart of God and it is the glory of the gospel that the Lord is so moved by a repentant sinner that the same emotion floods him that floods us. And I gotta tell you what, I don't know if any of you had a, a conversion experience or if you were raised in the, you know, from the beginning as a Christian. Some of us never had that moment. I lived a pretty 
pretty wicked life for uh, my first 36 years. And one day I met the Lord and I, I broke down into tears that day. And I started reading his word 10 hours a day, every single day. And I did this for about two years because I had a job that would allow me to do that. I owned my own business. And I'd go to church on Sunday and I'd, I'd sit there in tears when I'd hear the message from the pastor. And I'd read the word and I'd sit there and I'd be crying for months, for three or four months. I cried every single day at the change that had taken place in me because of what Jesus Christ had done. And to think that the Lord is there weeping with me through the entire process as pictured by this is just simply astonishing. So if you've ever had that moment in your life where you knew the change in you, he was there with you. He was, he was weeping tears of joy at your conversion. I assure you of it. Verse five, and he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and children and said, whose are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. This verse right here pictures the biblical account in a nutshell. Presented to man, which is a picture by Esau, are the Lord, pictured by Jacob, and then you have the people of Israel, you have the law, you have the captivity of the Israelites, and you have the coming of God's grace. All of this is symbolized coming in a special order to be presented before man. It is God's way of dealing with us in a manner that we can understand. The children were, as Jacob notes, given to your servant. Jacob subordinates himself to Esau, just as Jesus subordinated himself to Adam by coming as a descendant of Adam, because the fathers are considered greater than the sons. Father Abraham is greater than Isaac. Jesus came as a descendant of Adam, and so he came as a servant. It's all here, and it's noted for us to see what God is doing in the world and through his own son, Jesus. If you notice, Jacob's reply only mentions the children and not the wives. I don't know if you picked that up. Let me read it to you again. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has given to your servant. He doesn't mention the wives, but Esau asked about the wives. And the reason why is because the children are picturing the sons of Adam, whom, as it says, God has given to Jacob. The picture is perfectly clear that these are Israel's redeemed of the ages from under the law, whether in times of freedom or during times of captivity, and those in the church age during the time of grace. They are Esau's kin by nature, meaning that they are sons of Adam, born to Jesus by the workings of God. Verse six, then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. Captivity and captivity's children come first before Adam, just as these maidservants and their sons come first before Esau. Verse seven, and Leah also came near with her children and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. In order then come Leah and her children, picturing the law and those born under the law, and then comes Rachel, picturing grace and those born under the New Testament grace, which is found in Jesus Christ. Of all of the children of Israel, only Joseph is mentioned. And he's mentioned by name, if you notice that. And he's mentioned, get this he's mentioned prior to Rachel. Now, why would that happen? Let me read it to you again. Listen to these. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. So it's the maidservants and then the children. Then it says, and Leah also came near, and then her children, and bowed down. It says afterward, Joseph, he's mentioned first, and then Rachel came near and bowed down. If you were here during the sermons about the births of the children, you might remember that Joseph pictured Christ at that time. He was given his name based on two words in Hebrew. 
It's the only son to be named based on two words rather than one word. The first word was Asaf, meaning to take away. The other word was Yosef, meaning he shall add. The mentioning of Joseph, and especially before Rachel, is to show us Jesus coming under the law, just prior to the age of grace, the church age. He has taken away the reproach of the law, Asaf, and he has added to God's fold, both Jew and Gentile, through grace, pictured by Rachel, which is Yosef. The, this is the answer that Adam Clark was wondering about concerning the peculiarity of the order of the, in the commentary that I read you earlier. He said, why is it like this? He didn't have any reason, but the answer is because of who these people picture and what God is trying to show us in human history. Our second thought today, God has dealt graciously with me. Verse eight, then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? Esau is not referring to the people right here. He's referring to the five droves of gifts that were given to him by Jacob when they were nearing Esau and they were coming together. Jacob sent those gifts over. He already knew what they were because the servants who brought them told him. However, he asked Jacob again directly so that he can have an opportunity to refuse the gifts. Verse eight continues. And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. In the same way that Esau can refuse the gifts, Jacob will know that he has found favor in Esau's eyes if he accepts them. If you were here during that sermon, you know that those five droves of animals picture the five dispensations prior to the coming of Christ. You had innocence in the Garden of Eden, then you had conscience after the garden up until the time of the flood, and then you had government from the time of the flood until the time of Abraham, then promise, promise was made to Abraham and that continues all the way to the time of Moses, and the fifth dispensation is law from Moses up until the coming of Christ. These were given by God to work reconciliation between God and man until the point of time that Christ came. And they were each given by the words of God through God's messengers, pictured by the servants proclaiming that message. Again, all of this symbolism is tied up in this encounter between these two brothers. Verse nine, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother, keep what you have for yourself. Esau's response is that he has enough. The word he uses is rav, to indicate an abundance. He has more than enough to satisfy himself. And I gotta tell you what, this is true. Man was given an abundance on this earth without God adding any extra. He didn't need to send Jesus and we could have just been created and lived our lives and died and we would have had an abundance. We have food from the earth, we've got animals and we've got sea life to eat. We've got cotton and wool for clothing. We've got mountains full of metal. We've got forests full of trees. We've got sunshine and we've got lollipops. Man can say to God, I have enough. Keep what you have for yourself. But in the end, everything here is temporary and it's earthly. What God offers is spiritual and it's eternal. Verse 10, and Jacob said, no, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Jacob explains the gift here and Esau's absolute need to accept it. If I have found favor in your sight, if Esau accepts the gift, then reconciliation is made between the two and he knows it. And it's the same with what this is picturing. If man accepts God's provision as presented in the work of Christ through these dispensations, then man has favored what God has offered. All right, verse 10 continues. Inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Jacob uses an idiom here that's found elsewhere in the Bible. Someone's face being compared to seeing the face of God is to say that just as God favors a person when his face shines on them, 
so it is when a person favors another person. The high priestly blessing of Israel that I give every week before we leave includes this thought, Ya'er Adonai Panav Eliecha, the Lord make his face shine upon you. Matthew Henry explains this verse this way. He says, Jacob saw God's favor to him in Esau's. It was a token to, for good to him that God had accepted his prayers. Once again, right here, we can see our relationship to Jesus in this verse. If we have received Jesus and his gifts to us, then our receiving of it is a token to him that the Father has accepted his work. The premise of Jesus in his work is that it is to bring reconciliation between God and us. All of this is pictured in this, this beautiful story of these two brothers meeting. Verse 11, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt gracious with, graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. In this last verse, it, before this one, Jacob's offering, he called his present minchati, my present. Now he terms it his, bl his blessing. He says, berchati. The gifts here are in fact intended to be a blessing. This is exactly what has been intended for man during the five dispensations leading up to Christ. They are blessings of divine favor from the Lord. And if you remember that ser sermon, every time the judgment was pronounced, before it was, the Lord gave grace, like uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Or before the exile, I will bring you back from exile. These gifts are in fact blessings. Bible translations almost consistently note here that Jacob says he has enough. If you have a Bible open, it probably says, I have enough. Doesn't say that at all. Instead, only Young's literal translation of the Bible. It's the only translation I could find that actually reads this properly. It says, I have all things. In Hebrew, the word is chol, all. This is included by God because it's true in what it pictures. Jesus has all things. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. Jacob has all kinds of temporal blessings. He's got the flocks and he's got the family and he's got these other things, but he also possessed the spiritual blessing. He possessed the birthright. God is his covenant God and his protector. Christ is his redeemer and the spirit is his sanctifier. We've seen all of this in the past sermons. Jacob has all. And he pictures Jesus beautifully in this respect. To Jesus is all honor and he is the heir of all glory. The, this is the intent of what we're supposed to see in this particular verse. Our third and final thought today, all in God's timing. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. In a sign of both acceptance of the gift and a happy relationship restored, Esau offers to travel with Jacob, leading the way and helping him as he goes along. This must surely picture man's willingness to participate in the Lord's work when he came. But time and time again, what did he do? He redirected those around him to show us that God's ways are not man's ways. I'm gonna give you two examples from the book of Matthew where Jesus follows a unique path which is reflected in Jacob's words to Esau. Here's Matthew chapter eight. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about, about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds, have, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And then in Matthew 16, we see something even more pertinent. It says, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it for you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. God is working out things in a unique way. Despite Esau offering to lead Jacob, Jacob turns him down. And despite people thinking that they have Jesus' path determined for him, he shows that God alone controls the route. Verse 13, but Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Jacob's response to Esau's offer is in regard to the children and the flocks and the herds which are nursing. The obvious thing that would happen if they tried to keep up with Esau and his 400 men is that they'd fall dead from the trip. In the same way, it would be beyond reason to ask 400 men to dally along on a journey, going at a snail's pace and stopping continuously for one thing after another. Esau's gracious offer, like those made to Jesus that I read you a moment ago, were simply unreasonable. Jesus' plan is one of length, it's one of preciseness, and it's one which tends to the needs of his people, of both Israel and of the church, all pictured in this verse. We are impatient and we call out, come Lord Jesus. But I got to tell you what, his plan includes more than just impatient you and desirous me. Verse 14, please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. Here Jacob implores Esau to go at his own pace and he'll follow along. The term he uses for the pace of the livestock and the children is le regel, which means at the foot. The speed he will take will be at the pace of the slowest of the bunch. It will be at whatever pace keeps everybody alive. He's in no hurry at all. And I got to tell you what, we do this a lot. Some of us may talk to somebody that we love about Jesus and we'll say, hey, uh, uh, you know, Jesus is the way and let me tell you what the Bible says. And uh, we expect the answer right away and it doesn't happen. And what do we do after that? We go back to him and we start beating Jesus over the head to them. We're not going at the foot. We're starting to go ahead at a quicker pace. And instead, what we should probably do in those instances, rather than continuing to fight against their rejection of Jesus, is to simply pray for them. That is at the foot because it's at God's pace. In the same way, here we're building a, a church building over in Gulfgate. Actually, we bought a building and we're working on it. We're not really building a whole building, just so you know. But uh, uh, it's taken a long time. It's taken a hugely long time to get this done. And my inclination is to just say, let's get it done, let's get it done. But that is obviously not at the foot. And the reason why is because God has us out here. This is his church. It's not our church, it's the Lord's church and we're members in it. And it could be that there is somebody that's gonna walk by one of these days before we move in and he'll hear something that will change his life forever. We don't know why these things have been delayed the way they have, but we have to accept it at the foot. So don't try to rush things when God has a different pace, just understand that we need to work at the foot, at the pace of the slowest of the bunch. Now at the end of this verse right here, this is something I'm always peculiar about. It says, until I come to my Lord in Seir, meaning Jacob says he'll come and see Esau. There's no record of him ever having gone there, but it does not mean he lied or that he never went there, okay? And a lot of Bibles will do this. They'll say, well, Jacob was deceitful to his brother. His name Jacob means deceiver. And so they'll say he was deceitful, he never went to Esau. Put a big X through that in your Bible or pull it out, just tear it out completely if you read that kind of a commentary because that's nuts. 
as I said earlier, there is no record of him having gone to see his father Isaac, and yet we can be absolutely sure that he did. He lived next to him a couple miles away for many, many years. The Bible is not recording a detailed life of Jacob. It's recording details of the life of Jacob. It's a huge difference, and the details are selected to show small pictures of what lie ahead, not broad panoramas of what lie behind. Jesus is leading on, and he's doing it slowly. He's taking his time as he builds to, tends to, and leads his flock. His children are being well cared for, and that is all that we need to know. He is a wise, careful, and gentle keeper of his sheep. Jacob probably did go to visit Esau, but it's not a part of what's important for us to know. It doesn't show us anything about the future or what Christ is going to be doing, so he didn't include it. If a second encounter with Esau is expected, and in fact we know it is, the Bible indicates it, we aren't given any clues as to when it will happen. And if a second encounter with Jesus is inspected, expected, and we know that it is, we don't need to be speculating about it. Jesus is going to return on his own schedule, and we don't need to worry about the timing. Instead, we need to do as he instructed his disciples. We are to go out, and we are to be his witnesses until he returns. And I'm not talking about not speaking about prophecy, about the rapture, or about anything that's coming in the future. I'm talking about pinpointing days. The Bible doesn't give that detail in this account, and that is where it would be if he wanted us to know, okay? Verse 15, and Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Because Jacob declined the first offer, Esau offers to leave some of his men with Jacob. Now this would be a gesture and an offer of protection and help on his journey. But Jacob declines again. He has all the help and all the servants that he needs, and the Lord is his protector as well. And the evident picture in this verse, and I got to tell you, this should be evident to all of us, is that Jesus and his servants should be tending to his flocks. We don't need the secular world getting involved in this process. It is his flock, it is his people, and it is his responsibility. If the church cannot sustain itself, then that church needs to close. If the mission is not productive, that mission needs to be ended. There's no reason why we should rely on the secular world to have our business accomplished. And I'm not talking about calling an AC guy to fix the air conditioner in the church. I'm talking about the spiritual matters of the church. This is the Lord's flock, and those who aren't a part of it have to understand this, and so do we. And I'm going to give you an example, which I personally think of quite often. I got a guy that I do mission work every single Saturday of my life with. Okay, he's one of my best friends in the world. And we disagree on this particular point, is that we... I don't believe that we as a church should have secular people playing instruments in our church. And he disagrees. You know, his son's in the band, and there's a guy that's in the band that doesn't believe anything, and he just plays in the band, and they pay him. And I think that's wrong. That's something that that person should be doing as an act of worship to the Lord, not for pay. I lived next to a Jewish guy for many, many years, and he actually played in a Pentecostal band for years and years and years. And he didn't believe anything. He didn't even believe Judaism. He was just a Jew by name. And I think that's just inappropriate that we would do that. We used to have musicians out here by the score during our afternoon services, and we don't have any anymore. And I'm not going to hire somebody to come out here or to go to the church that we're going to that is not a Christian. Now, you, his argument is that 
we can have secular uh, people in our music because then maybe they'll hear something about Jesus. No, rather, we should be telling people about Jesus, and if they accept him, then let him into the church. Not the opposite way around. We don't use the church as a tool to get people saved, except in the act that we go out and we tell people about Jesus. And they can come in and they can sit in the church and be saved, but they shouldn't be participating in the spiritual matters of the church. That's just me, and I get that out of this verse right here. So if you disagree with me, we'll just have to disagree on it, but that's how I perceive these type of things. Verse 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. On the same day that they met for the first time in 20 years. Now think about that. They've just met for the very first time in 20 years and they've had a happy reunion and now he's on his way back to Seir. Esau is departing for home. Both, I'm sure, were immensely relieved at the reunion and the ended animosity that had driven them apart for so very long. And isn't this the same feeling that we have when we're reconciled to Christ? I know it is with me. I, I can never get beyond the moment that Christ came into my heart. I, I cannot get beyond it. Even today, I'll type these sermons on Monday morning and I'll, I'll actually start crying as I'm typing these things, thinking about Charlie Garrett and what the Lord has done for me. All these years later, I still think about it. The tension is gone, the past is behind us, and friendship with God is restored. We now have a new hope, we have a new direction, and a new attitude on life. Esau returns to the land called Seir, which means, and I've said this in several sermons, it means hairy. Remember that Esau is a hairy person. It was named after him. And I've noted in those sermons that hair in the Bible denotes awareness. If you see the word hair, it's usually denoting an awareness. Uh, somebody wears a, a, a coat of hair, he's a prophet. He has an awareness about God. So pay attention when you're reading the Bible. It is man's place to be aware. We're sentient beings. We're ever in search, or we should be ever in search of more knowledge and more experiences. Esau returns to the land of awareness, the land of Harry, but he has a new awareness. He is reconciled to Jacob, and man, likewise, after his meeting with Christ, has a new awareness. We have a, a new knowledge, a greater knowledge than we ever could have imagined. We are reconciled to God through this meeting, which is all divinely orchestrated by God who sees and who knows all things, and he directs them for his purposes. Verse 17, this is our last verse of the day. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And I want, you to, I want to tell you something. This verse right here enters into a completely new dispensation of God's workings. And I actually probably should have, but I don't want to overdo it. This one verse should have been a sermon all by itself. And I'm not going to make it long. You're going to miss a whole lot. But this verse right here transitions from the law into the church age in one verse. After this happy reunion and the subsequent departure, it says that Jacob journeyed to Sukkot. This place gets its name from the account. That's something that we see a lot in the Bible. Even though the title or the name is given first, it's actually a result of the story. This is very important. This place is east of the Jordan River. It is not in the land of Canaan. And I want you to remember that. It says there that he built himself a house. This then is a permanent dwelling. In Hebrew, the word is bait. We've seen the five dispensations leading up to the coming of Christ. Then we saw the meeting between Jacob and Esau, which pictures Christ's coming and meeting with man. In this verse, we are seeing Christ returning and building a house pictured by Jacob's building of a house. But guess what? The place is named not after the house. 
It's named after the booth for the livestock. In Leviticus 23, we will see this recorded as an observance for the people of Israel, one of the seven feasts of the Lord. Listen to this. Speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for, to the Lord for seven days. The word translated here as tabernacles in Leviticus is the word Sukkot. This feast of the Lord is picturing the dwelling of God with man. It is the church age. This one verse pictures the church age in a nutshell. Jesus came and as John chapter 1 tells us, he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He Sukkot among us. He put on a temporary garment of flesh. He is departed, but his spirit now dwells in our temporary shelter, our Sukkot. This house that Jacob built pictures the church and the shelters or the booths for his flocks are our residences with him, our bodies sealed with his Holy Spirit. This is the lesson that we're to see in this beautiful account of these two brothers who are now reconciled to each other. The enmity is over, the past is gone, and there is now a peace which is restored between Jacob and Esau, between Jesus and Adam. God is now building a house, as the New Testament tells us, of living stones. We who have called on Christ are those living stones. In one verse, we've gone from the law to the next dispensation, which is the church age. While we're here on earth, we're dwelling in our temporary shelters, our Sukkot, but someday Jesus is going to return and he's going to give us eternal bodies. He's gonna give us bodies that will never wear out, they'll never tire, they'll never die. We will experience a new type of existence that we cannot yet fathom. All of this is absolutely sure. It's as sure as the sun is in the sky. Now, if you've never received this, this gift, this beautiful gift of Christ, of eternal life, which is offered to Adam's children, if you've never been reconciled to the Lord and made peace with him and kissed him, if you've never received them, then give me just one more minute to explain to you how you can and why it is important to you. We've been seeing these stories about how God is working to reconcile God to man. And the way he did it was by entering the stream of humanity himself. Adam rebelled against God, turned his back on him, and he disobeyed him, and sin entered the world. And sin travels through the mail of humanity. That's the picture of circumcision. It's a picture of cutting away of sin. It's picturing something that is coming in Jesus Christ. It travels through the Father, and we, you and I, cannot go back before Adam's sin and undo what he did. We're in time, and we're moving this way. And we're inheriting Adam's sin, and we're fallen, so we're sinning more. And it's separated us from God. A finite sin infinitely separates you from an infinite creator. And so what did God do? He came into the stream of humanity by entering into a woman's womb. No father, sin travels through the father. His father is God, his mother is a human, and so he is the God man. Now he, being born sinless, has the potential to undo what Adam did. But he has something more to do. He was born under the law, which is pictured in what we're looking at today. He has to fulfill that law without violating it in any respect. And if he can do that, then he will prevail over the law which God has given. And he did. He prevailed over the law. He was born sinless and he lived sinlessly. And he went to the cross and he paid the sin debt that each of you and I have. And so now he offers us a trade. We can stay in Adam or we can move to Christ, pictured once again in today's sermon. If we choose Christ, then our sin is nailed to the cross with him. And the good news is that the wages of sin 
is death. Jesus came out of the grave, so he didn't sin. That's the proof that he was sinless, and it's the proof that he can take away our sin. Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that it was impossible for death to hold him. It could not hold him because he was without sin. So if you have never taken your sin and transferred it to the Lamb of God, I would ask that you do that. Because we spoke about people dying at the beginning of the sermon in battle or maybe getting run over by somebody from Pennsylvania. And we don't know if that's going to happen today or not. And when it does, that's the end of our existence. And we will now face the Creator on whatever merits we had at that time. Either in Christ and on His merits or in Adam and on our own merits. So please make that choice. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He will give you a new life and a new direction that you cannot believe. I absolutely assure you of it. Living testimony to it right here. Accept Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. All right, I got a closing verse for you today. It comes from the book of 1 Peter. And tell me this doesn't beautifully match what we've been talking about today. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, here's Esau and Adam and the change is made in Esau and he greets his brother in a kiss of love. And now if you are in Christ, then greet your other Christians with a kiss of love as well. Let them know how much you love them from day to day. All right, that's uh, 1 Peter 5, 14. Next week is gonna be Genesis 33, verses 18 through 20. We got just three verses. It's called God, the God of Israel. Now, because it's only three verses, I'm gonna give you a challenge today. I want you to read those three verses. I want you to study them in Hebrew. I want you to read every possible commentary that you can find, every commentary that you can find on them, so that when I give this sermon next week, you can say, Charlie, I already knew that. And I'm gonna give you a hint as to what those three verses are talking about, okay? We've been following a pattern in Jacob's life which is found in human history. You've seen it perfectly if you've been watching these sermons. We've seen the five dispensations, we've seen Christ come, and in one verse, we saw the church age. What's next? Read those three verses, study them, and be ready for next week's sermon, okay? I'll tell you before I give you, I, I do a weekly poem for the people that have never been here before based on the verses that we uh, looked at. And uh, we're almost done with a, a Genesis poem. I can't wait to publish it. But um, anyway, before I do that, I want to tell you that the Lord has you exactly, exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right, our poem today, just before we take communion, is Jacob comes to Esau, Jesus comes to Adam, Adam being man. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked then, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. Will it be peace or war drums drumming? So he divided the children among Leah, it does tell, and Rachel and the two maidservants as well. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last in order for Esau to confront these positions he assigned. Then he crossed over before child and mother and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother, making it hard for me to make suitable rhymes. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, yes it is so, and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept, two brothers reconciled, you know. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? The children whom God has graciously then given to your servant, my beautiful family crew. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down, and Leah also with her children so dear. And they bowed to Esau, their uncle of renown. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down, who were to Jacob so dear. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, These are to find favor, as you have seen in the sight of my Lord, whom I once upset. 
But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself or give it to another. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face, I am filled with delight. It is though I had seen God's face and you were pleased with me here in this place. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough, it's true. So he urged him and he took it willingly. Then Esau said, let us our journey make. Let us go and I will be before you on the path that we take. But Jacob said to him with these words, my Lord knows that the children are weak. And so it is with the flocks and the herds, which are with me nursing of them, I speak. And if men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Yep, they will pass away. Please let my Lord before his servant proceed. I will lead on slowly at a pace, which the livestock that go before me can heed and the children are able to endure. It's not a race. Until I come to my Lord and say here, we'll meet up again sometime, do not fear. And Esau said, now let me here leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? None, I believe. Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord, I plea. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkot that day, and built himself a house over there, and made booths for his livestock to stay. Therefore the name of the place is called Sukkot. This is the place, name of the place that the Bible does note. Time and again we see hints in each story of the coming of Christ and of his great glory. He has come to bring reconciliation to us. Yes, he has come to meet with Adam's seed. To be born again is now possible through Jesus. And with that gift comes eternal life indeed. Let us not fail to accept this glorious gift of God, which will allow us in his presence to trod. Forever, God will lavish his grace upon us. A glorious gift made possible through our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for these beautiful stories, which tell of the great love that you have for the people of the world and how reconciliation is made through this wonderful Savior, how he came and he dwelled among us and he did these things. And in the process, you gave us dispensations to show us it was coming and to instruct us on how to live until the day that he came. And now that he's come, we can see that we are your tabernacles where you are dwelling in us and allowing us to spread your word throughout the world. And I would pray that each person here would be willing to do that, to to give up their life and to tell other people, if necessary, over in foreign countries or support those who go to foreign countries and spread that message, that there is peace and there is reconciliation between God and man because of this wonderful Savior, this beautiful Lord, this glorious God. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for Jesus and all that he has done. And so in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.